Thank you, Chris, for the introduction, and thank you to the Society for Aristotelian Thomistic Studies for having me here for this conference to speak, and for thank you to Thomas Aquinas College for, for hosting it. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action, with this special observance, that you o'erstep not the modesty of nature, for anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end both at the first and now, was and is to hold, as t'were, the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. So these words uh, that I've just read are the words of advice that Hamlet utters to the players whom he enjoins to enact in front of his uncle, a scene depicting the murder of his father. Should Claudius but flinch, Hamlet will have received confirmation of the veracity of the ghost's message, satisfying the doubt that the apparition may have been the devil attempting to damn him by prompting him to murder. These words are striking and remarkable. They're well-deserving of remark for two reasons. First, they are universal. Through the words of Hamlet, Shakespeare is speaking of the overarching purpose of his art, which is playing or drama and, in a larger sense, the purpose of poetry as a whole. Second, they immediately call to mind the words of Aristotle and St. Thomas following him. When the student of Aristotle hears the words, to hold as toward the mirror up to nature, he immediately thinks of the dictum that art imitates nature, which we find, for instance, in Book 2, Chapter 2 of the Physics. Prompted by these words of Shakespeare, my goal in this presentation is to ascertain the purpose of poetry as a whole, using Aristotle and St. Thomas as guides. To this end, I will attempt three things. First, I will make a case for the importance of knowing what poetry is. Second, I will explain the nature of poetry and defend this explanation. Third, I will determine the primary purpose of poetry. Before I proceed, though, I must pause for a necessary note on naming. I intend to speak about what Plato and Aristotle called poetry. By this name, both of them included everything from lyric poetry to epic. When we use the word poetry, however, we often first think of lyric poetry or a short composition in verse. There is no word of ours that conveys exactly the meaning of the Greek word poetry, but the English word that most closely approximates what Plato and Aristotle meant by poetry is fiction. In any event, when I use the words poetry and fiction, I mean something made up, which is not supposed to be true or factual, and may take the form of the epic or other forms of verse composition, the novel, the play, the short story, and the like. Now, on to the importance of the inquiry. Having won first prize in Rhapsody at the Epidorian festival of Asclepius, the god of healing, Ion meets up with Socrates and claims that although he understands and can explain the greatness of Homer better than anyone in history, he's incapable of judging the quality of any other poet. He says, no one else who ever was has had as good ideas about Homer as I have, or as many. And I believe myself able to speak about Homer better than any man. Yet he also claims that his art which, he says, includes the interpretation of poetry, does not extend to Hesiod 
or Archilochus, but to Homer only, and that he has absolutely no ideas of the least value when anyone speaks of any other poet. Socrates proceeds to show that, barring divine inspiration, what Ion says is impossible. He says to him, no one can fail to see that you speak of Homer without any art or knowledge. If you were able to speak of him by rules of art, you would have been able to speak of all other poets, for poetry is a whole. That poetry is a whole, he establishes by observing that all poets handle the same themes, such as human society and the intercourse of men, good and bad. Then, summing up his main point at the end of the dialogue, Socrates says, but indeed, Ion, if you are correct in saying that by art and knowledge you are able to praise Homer, you do not deal fairly with me. And after all your professions of knowing many glorious things about Homer, you are only a deceiver. And so far from exhibiting the art of which you are a master, will not, even after my repeated entreaties, explain to me the nature of it. Socrates establishes here that knowing the nature of poetry is necessary for assessing the greatness or lack thereof of any poem or and for judging what kind of fiction one ought and ought not to read. For one cannot know whether a given piece of writing excels as a poem without knowing what a poem is. Though necessary for sound literary criticism, this knowledge is not sufficient. It's also necessary to know its purpose. This is because the end is everywhere the chief thing and commands everything else. As is especially evident in artificial things, the end dictates and determines every element of production. For example, everything about the way an axe is made, the heavy, sharp, durable blade and the long, smooth, light handle is determined by its purpose of chopping wood. It follows from this that if one is mistaken about the end of some product of art, you will be in no position to judge it. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. The first thing to understand is the object before you. As long as you think the corkscrew was meant for opening tins or the cathedral for entertaining tourists, you can say nothing to the purpose about them. Knowing the nature of poetry, what it is, and its purpose, what it is for, then, are necessary for being a good judge of poetry, the importance of which is difficult to overstate. For the fine arts, or what passes for them, are universally enjoyed and almost as universally misunderstood. Many of those who delight in movies, novels, and the lyrics of popular music, all of which are species of fiction, rarely give a thought to the lasting effect on the soul. Moreover, it's all too common for authors and critics of fiction to ignore or dismiss any obligation to attend to the moral effect of their art. And yet, as Edgar Allan Poe says, during the hour of perusal, the soul of the reader is at the writer's control. How true this is. When we decide to watch a movie or read a work of fiction, we are allowing the author to have his way with our faculties. We are lending him our imagination asking him to imprint the indelible images of his choosing. We're inviting him to play our passions to the tune of harmony or discord. And because these passions are often an enigma to us, the enduring effects of their being ill-disposed to their objects are often 
misunderstood or entirely unnoticed. On the other hand, if the fiction that we enjoy is as it should be, the positive effects can be just as lasting and can have just as powerful an effect on the upright disposition of the emotions, the imagination, and even the intellect. In short, the kind of fiction we read is part of what makes us who we are. Let's begin our quest for the nature of poetry, then, with an examination of what Aristotle says about this in the Poetics. In the opening lines of this work, he makes this, this assertion, epic poetry and tragedy, as also comedy, dithyrambic poetry, and most flute-playing and lyre-playing are all viewed as a whole modes of imitation. Poetry, then, is a kind of imitation. Uh, in other words, its proximate genus is imitation. I've often wondered why neither Aristotle nor St. Thomas presents an argument that this is the case. With regard to poetry, I suspect that this is because by saying poetry is a mode of imitation, Aristotle meant something quite straightforward and palpable. When actors performed Antigone on the stage, for example, the entire audience knew that they were witnessing not human action in real life, but a likeness or mimesis of human action. Were the actress who plays Antigone to portray the act of hanging herself in front of the spectators, everyone would know that she's not really hanging herself. We, we would be viewing a likeness of a woman committing suicide and not a real suicide. Nevertheless, if we were to present an argument that the fine art of poetry is essentially an imitation of human action and passion, it would be best to proceed by way of induction, as Aristotle does when he supports his definition of art in the more general sense in Book 6, Chapter 4 of the Ethics. St. Thomas explains Aristotle's argument in this way. For we see that building is a kind of art, and also that it is a kind of habit for making something with the use of reason. And no art is found to which this does not apply, namely, that it is a habit for making something with the use of reason. Neither is there found such a habit for making something with the use of reason, which is not art. Therefore, it is clear that art is the same as a habit making something with the use of right reason. Applying this line of reasoning to fiction, we see that in every single instance of fiction, in every epic, novel, play, and short story, we find that there is no intention to present events that are necessarily real or factual. Rather, there is an attempt to portray the likeness or representation of human action and passion. Even fictional works whose characters are beasts or other creatures treat them as rational animals with human acts that flow from reason and will. Conversely, every time we find a likeness of human action of this kind, we call it fiction as opposed to nonfiction. Therefore, a work of fiction can be defined as an imitation of human action and passion. Seeing clearly that poetry is essentially an imitation, though, requires more explanation of what an imitation is and just what kind of imitation poetry is. Let us now spell out more fully what poetic imitation or mimesis is. In order for one thing to be an imitation of another, two things are required. First, it must bear a resemblance to or be like some other thing. Second, it must proceed from that thing. One pea may be like another pea in the same pod, but one pea is not an imitation or image of the other because it does not proceed from it. Yet a painting of peas is both like the peas and proceeds from them. Therefore, the painting is an imitation of the peas. If poetry is a mode of imitation, then, it is so because it is like an original and proceeds from that original. In the case of poetry, the original or exemplar is human action in real life, and poetry is the likeness of human action that proceeds from this. 
Most would agree that Aristotle meant at least this much by the word imitation or mimesis. Yet the most common acceptation of the word imitation in contemporary English is an inauthentic or inferior substitute for something real, as in imitation vanilla extract or imitation crab meat. This meaning is often attributed to Aristotle's use of the word mimesis, and for that reason, his assertion that poetry is a mode of imitation is immediately discarded. Yet the goal of the poet is not to produce something as close as possible to the real thing that will, if he is successful, be mistaken for something real. On the contrary, the poet intends that his in his imitation there be both likeness and difference. By the invention of the author's imag imagination, something's added to the original. In this sense, the imitation is not only not inferior to the original, it is in some sense superior. The imitation brings out some quality of the original and presents it more perceptibly than it is in real life. For example, in Shakespeare's plays, he presents soliloquies of the characters to make clear their inmost thoughts and their true character. In Claudius' Oh, My Offenses Rank soliloquy, we learn why he murdered his brother and why he refuses to repent. Because he cannot relinquish his crown, his ambition, and his queen, he remains mired in sin. In real life, we do not normally engage in soliloquies bearing our inmost thoughts and motivations. Most of the time, we do not know why people act the way they do, and we never know the state of someone else's soul. But we know both of these things about Claudius. In great fiction, a character and his motives are much more clearly presented than they are in reality. Citing another example, by narrating in a third-person omniscient point of view, Jane Austen reveals to the reader the inmost thoughts and motivations of her characters, this kind of knowledge we never have in real life. These differences between the imitation and the original are a product of the poet's imagination. He must make up or imagine the particulars of his story and how this likeness is presented. For this reason, we may call the kind of imitation that we find in poetry an imaginative imitation. It's also necessary in a work of poetry that the imitation be perceived as an imitation and not as something real. For example, if an audience were viewing a production of Othello and somehow became convinced that the actor playing Othello really killed the actress playing Desdemona, the production would cease and the performance would be ruined because the act was perceived as something real and not as an imitation. It's essential to the appreciation of any piece of fiction then that it be perceived as an imitation and not as the reality. Another confirmation of this is that we never give the name fiction to productions that are supposed to be real. Reality television is so-called because the pretense is that we are watching something real as opposed to other kinds of television which are supposed to be fictional. Most modern poets and critics, however, have cast aside the notion that poetry is essentially an imitation of human action. Since the beginning of Romanticism in the early 19th century, the most prevalent view among poets and critics has been that poetry is essentially an expression of the author's imagination or feelings. For example, in his essay, What is Poetry?, John Stuart Mill supplies the following definition of poetry. Poetry is the expression or uttering forth of feeling. It is feeling confessing itself to itself in moments of solitude. And Percy Shelley, in his defense of poetry, says, Poetry, in a general sense, may be defined to be the expression of the imagination. Also, in his preface to the Lyrical Ballads, William Wordsworth defines poetry as the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. 
The main difficulty with defining poetry as the expression or uttering forth of feeling or imagination is that it's not convertible with the thing defined. And this is for two reasons. First, the definition includes things that are not poetry. Crying over the death of a loved one is an expression of feeling, but it is not poetry. Second, not all poetry is an expression of the author's feelings. Lady Macbeth makes known her desire to forsake her womanhood in order to perform evil deeds when she says, Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here, and fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. Yet Shakespeare did not experience the desire to forsake womanhood in order to perform evil deeds. A poet's capable of understanding and conveying a certain emotion without necessarily having experienced that emotion himself. Another, another difficulty that arises with this definition is that if one wanted to distinguish poetry from the mere appearance thereof, he would have to know whether the poet were impassioned at the time of composition, or at least whether he experienced the emotion expressed. In mo yet in most cases, this is impossible to know. Therefore, it would in most cases be impossible to know whether a given composition were a poem or no. The expression of the author's feelings or imagination, therefore, cannot be the definition of poetry. Of the two most prevalent ways of understanding what is essential to poetry, then, Aristotle's is the more sensible. Having identified uh, what poetry is, the next consideration is to determine what it is for. It may seem to some that any discussion of the purpose of poetry outside the imitation itself is unnecessary, and that the imitation is itself the end. In fact, this seems to be what Shakespeare is saying in the opening quotation, namely that the purpose of playing is to hold the mirror up to nature or to imitate nature. It seems that he's saying here that the imitation is an end in itself. Also, Aristotle says in the Poetics, chapter 6, it is the action in it, that is, its fable or plot, that is the end and purpose of tragedy. In this passage as well, it seems that Aristotle is saying that the action, that is the imitation of human action, is itself the purpose of tragedy. Is there any purpose, then, beyond the imitation itself? Are we finished with our inquiry into the purpose of poetry? No such luck. To answer this question, it's necessary to distinguish two senses of purpose. In Book 2, Chapter 7 of the Physics, Aristotle says that the formal cause, the what, and the final cause, that for the sake of which, are the same. In his commentary on this passage, St. Thomas says, this must be understood concerning the final cause of generation, but not concerning the final cause of the thing generated. For example, the form of a man is the final cause of the process of the generation of a man but not the final cause of the thing generated. The thing generated, which is the man himself, has a final cause outside of the man himself. St. Thomas also makes this distinction in the principles of nature, where he uses an artifact as an example. End, however, is twofold, namely the end of generation and the end of the thing generated, as is evident in the generation of a knife. For the form of the knife is the end of generation, but cutting, which is the operation of the knife itself, is the end of the thing generated, naming the knife. Applying this distinction to poetry, then, the purpose of the process of generating or producing the poem is the poem itself, which is an imitation of action. It is only in this sense that imitation is the purpose of poetry. This is the meaning of the word purpose that is used by Shakespeare and Aristotle in the passages cited above. 
they are both speaking of the purpose of generation. The purpose of the thing generated, or the poem itself, however, is something beyond this, which brings us to our next consideration. Because the final cause or purpose is what is first in our intention, in our search for the purpose of poetry, it's best to consider the origin of this fine art and what it is intended for. Aristotle states this principle in Book 6, Chapter 5 of the Ethics in this way. For the originating causes of things that are done consist in the end at which they are aimed. There are two places where Aristotle considers the origin of poetry. The first of these is in Chapter 4 of the Poetics, where he says, The general origin of poetry was due to two causes, each of them part of human nature. These two causes are as follows. First, that imitation is natural to man. And second, that delight in imitation is natural to man. We know that imitation is natural to man because we all learn by imitation. Children learn how to speak and act by following their natural inclination to imitate their parents. Adults learn how to speak new languages by imitating native speakers. And we learn how to proceed in philosophy by imitating the methods of those who are best at it. That we delight in imitation, Aristotle says, is shown by experience. We all naturally take delight in a realistic representation of something. He puts it this way. Though the objects themselves may be painful to see, we delight to view the most realistic representations of them in art. Jane Austen also says that we delight in imitation. When speaking of Emma's portraits as a narrator, she says, a likeness pleases everybody. Poetry then originates from our most natural inclination to take delight in imitation. Therefore, delight seems to be the most fundamental or most natural reason for engaging in a work of fiction. The second place where Aristotle speaks of the origin of poetry is in the first chapter of Book One of the Metaphysics. Speaking of the historical beginnings of the art, he says, at first, he who invented any art whatever that went beyond the common perceptions of man was naturally admired by men, not only because there was something useful in the inventions, but because he was thought wise and superior to the rest. But as more arts were invented, and some were directed to the necessities of life, was the servile arts, others to recreation, the fine arts, the inventors of the latter were naturally regarded as wiser than the inventors of the former, because their branches of knowledge did not aim at utility. Hence, when all such inventions were already established, the sciences which do not aim at giving pleasure or at the necessities of life were discovered. And first, in the places where men first began to have leisure. And this is why the mathematical arts were founded in Egypt, for there the priestly caste was allowed to be at leisure. There he's talking about the liberal arts. So when Aristotle is speaking of the origin of the fine arts, among which we find poetry, he says that they're directed to recreation and that they aim at giving pleasure. Pleasure or delight, then, is what poetry aims at, just as much as the servile arts aim at the necessities of life. St. Thomas confirms this in his commentary on this passage. That the speculative sciences were not discovered for the sake of utility is made clear from this sign. When all such arts of this kind had already been developed, that is, acquired or obtained, namely those that can be for the sake of introducing the sciences, or for the sake of the necessities of life, or for the sake of pleasure, such as the arts which are ordered to the delight of men. The speculative sciences were not obtained for reasons of this sort, 
but for their own sake. The pertinent matter here is that St. Thomas, following Aristotle, is saying that the fine arts, including poetry, are for the sake of pleasure and ordered to delighting men. Horace makes this point in the Ars Poetica, which St. Thomas read. So a poem, the purpose of which is to please the taste, if it fails at all of the highest point, drops to the lowest. This certainly fits with our experience. Why do we read works of fiction that we're not obliged to read? It's for the sake of enjoyment, diversion, recreation, escape, pleasure. The kind of pleasure that Shakespeare intended for his audience was the same kind of pleasure that we seek when we go to the movies. We'll see if that holds up after this afternoon's talk. Not exactly the same, right? Uh, he certainly did not intend his plays to be a painful and torturous experience that must be endured as a requirement for entering the class of the culturally elite. The only real way to appreciate a work of literature as a work of literature is to enjoy it. C.S. Lewis explains it this way. After a certain kind of sherry party, where there have been cataracts of culture, but never one word or one glance that suggested a real enjoyment of any art, any person, or any natural object, my heart warms to the schoolboy on the bus who's reading fantasy and science fiction, wrapped and oblivious of all the world beside. For here, also I should feel that I had but something real and live and unfabricated. Genuine literary experience, spontaneous and compulsive, disinterested. I should have hopes of that boy. Those who have greatly cared for any book whatever may possibly come to care someday for good books. The organs of appreciation exist in them. They are not impotent. And even if this particular boy is never going to like anything severer than science fiction, even so, the child whose love is here at least doth reap one precious gain that he forgets himself. I think C.S. Lewis there is making a similar point to the one uh, that Aristotle makes at the beginning of the metaphysics when he says that, that uh, the philosopher is in some sense a philomuthos or a lover of stories because uh, wonder is an indispensable step along the path to wisdom. And uh, he says that in the beginning of Greek poetry, it was about the origins, you know, like uh, Hesiod's Theogony, which is about the origins of the gods. And so reading about poetry in that sense uh, was conducive to cultivating wonder about origins and causes. And wonder is fully satisfied only in the knowledge of the highest cause, because even all the other kinds of knowledge that are for their own sake are still for the sake of knowing that cause. So the helpfulness of poetry philosophy is most conspicuous there, but it's also helpful in the sense that when you're reading a work of fiction, you have a desire to know what's going to happen to the characters, how they're going to get themselves out of a predicament, or what kind of thing is going to happen to the hero that you identify with. And you want to know that, not because of anything you're going to do with the knowledge, but for its own sake. So it helps to cultivate that love of uh, knowledge for its own sake. Here, Lewis is making the point that the genuine experience of literature consists in enjoying it. If we read great works of fiction to impress others at a cocktail party, 
with some notion of how cultured we are, then we read them for the wrong reason. Rather, we read them to engage our emotions and our imagination in a delightful diversion. This pleasure comes chiefly from the emotional engagement we experience, but also from the beauty of the language, including the art of figurative language, to manifest likeness. St. Thomas says the poetic art makes use of metaphors for the sake of representation, for representation is naturally pleasing to man. The use of metaphor is for the sake of the representation or the imitation, and the representation is in turn for the sake of pleasing man. That the reader enjoy his work then is the first and most immediate end of the poet. But if this is the case, why is it that in the definition of tragedy, Aristotle says that the incidents in a tragedy are there to accomplish a catharsis of pity and fear? It seems that if the end of tragedy is the catharsis of these emotions, that other genres would also accomplish a catharsis of the emotions proper to them. And a catharsis or purification of emotions does not seem to be the same thing as pleasure. Rather, the purification of the emotions seems to serve principally the moral end of making us virtuous. Aristotle himself supplies the answer to this objection in chapter 14 of the Poetics, where he says, the tragic pleasure is that of pity and fear. And the poet has to produce it by a work of imitation. The primary kind of pleasure that the poet aims at, then, is an emotional one. The very catharsis or purification of emotion, which we find in the measured experience of the emotions proper to the genre, is what we find most pleasurable in our engagement with the work. Dwayne Berquist puts it this way. The chief pleasure from tragedy and comedy is from the catharsis or purgation and purification of the emotions. This is why Aristotle has put the catharsis of pity and fear in the definition of tragedy. Comedy purges our mirth and hope while eliminating the harmful passion of melancholy. The catharsis of emotions leaves them in a more reasonable disposition. Hence, in aiming at the pleasure of catharsis, the good playwright is making the play as wholesome as sweet. According to Dr. Berquist, then, the good playwright aims at the pleasure of catharsis. It is not the case, then, that catharsis is one thing, and the pleasure proper to poetry is something entirely different and unrelated. The experience of pure emotions is precisely what we find pleasurable in our experience with a piece of fiction. There is no opposition, therefore, between aiming at a catharsis of emotion and aiming at pleasure. This is especially clear in the case of comedy, which incites a catharsis of mirth and hope, which is both pleasant and good for the soul at the same time. Laughter is the best medicine. It encourages a healthy, cheerful disposition and dispels melancholy. Everyone enjoys a good laugh. We all thrill with zest when sadness is lifted from our hearts, and we all take delight in both funny and serious stories. Poetry then serves a unique purpose in the proper ordering of the faculties of the soul. Normally, the steps taken to rectify the passions are painful, not pleasant, as when we fast to curb the desire for food or to subdue sexual desire. In contrast, the proper end of poetry is the pleasure of catharsis, which 
if property properly elicited will have the effect of inducing the lower appetites to follow the order of reason. But how can the purgation of pity and fear, both of which are unpleasant emotions, be pleasant to us? Pity, which is a form of sadness, arises from the perception of something bad being experienced by another, and fear arises from the anticipation of something bad occurring to oneself. The answer to this objection is that the pity and fear that we feel as a result of tragedy arise in response to an imitation perceived as an imitation. As Aristotle says in chapter 4 of the Poetics, though the objects themselves may be painful to see, we delight to view the most realistic representations of them in art, the forms, for example, of the lowest animals and of dead bodies. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, every child knows that we do well to watch and, in a sense, to enjoy the murder of Desdemona. And every child knows that if we so watched and so enjoyed the like in real life, we should be villains. The reason we do well to enjoy the murder of Othello's wife is not because we perceive wife murder to be a good. If anyone should have any doubts concerning the evil of wife murder, see question 60, articles 1 and 2, in the supplement to the Summa, where St. Thomas argues that wife murder is indeed a sin. <laughs> On the contrary, because the act is represented as the evil that it really is, there is a kind of delight in comparing this to the reality. Art need not and should not always be the imitation of a beautiful thing, but it should always be the beautiful imitation of a thing. St. Thomas supplies the reason that we delight in the representation of repulsive things in the prima secundae. Because of this, that wonder is a cause of pleasure, all things that cause wonder are delightful, such as rare things, and all representations of things, even those which are not delightful in themselves. For the soul rejoices in the comparison of one thing with another, because the comparison, comparing one thing with another is the proper and co-natural act of reason, as the philosopher says in his Poetics, chapter 4. In addition to the pleasure we feel in the perception of the representation, there's also a pleasure in the emotions that arise from this, which are in response to something that we know is made up. Our experience of them, that is, the emotions of pity and fear, are not the same as they are in real life when we respond to events that affect the lifelong happiness or misery of ourselves or those we care about. The emotions of pity and fear incited by tragedy are felt in their proper measure and in response to the likenesses of their proper objects. Also, they are experienced in a purified way without being mixed with many other emotions as they are in real life. In the case of Othello, our pity for the tragic hero, having been duped by the wiles of Iago, and our fear that if we should be so gullible and so rash that something similar may happen to us is the delight of the play. As Aristotle says, the tragic pleasure is that of pity and fear. Another sign to corroborate the point that the catharsis of emotions is itself pleasurable is that the more emotionally engaging a story is, the more we enjoy it. We want a book that we can't put down or a movie that keeps us on the edge of our seats. We crave suspense, which comes from not knowing what will happen to the characters, and at the same time, caring deeply for them in the context of a plot that affects their lifelong happiness. Plato speaks of this quality of fiction in the Republic. I think you know that the very best of us, when we hear Homer or some other of the makers of tragedy, imitating one of the heroes who is in grief, 
and is delivering a long tirade in his lamentations or chanting and beating his breast, feel pleasure and abandon ourselves and accompany the representation with sympathy and eagerness. And we praise as an excellent poet the one who most strongly affects us in this way. This is related to the point that Aristotle makes that tragedy is superior to epic because of the intensity of the emotions felt. This account of the kind of pleasure that we feel when reading the best fiction and how this pleasure is good for us helps us to put into context the passage where St. Thomas speaks of poetry leading us to virtue. In his proemium to the commentary on the posterior analytics, he says, but sometimes only an opinion, an existimatio, inclines us to one side of a contradiction because of some representation in the way that the detestation of some kind of food comes to a man if it's represented to him under the likeness of something detestable. And the poetics is ordered to this, for it pertains to the poet to lead us to something virtuous by some suitable representation. All of these things pertain to the philosophy of reason, for it pertains to reason to lead from one thing to another. If the representation in poetry is suitable or fitting, it will be conducive to virtue. This will not be because it makes the reader virtuous, but because his appetites are disposed to love virtue and to test vice. Because the appetites have an effect on reason, inclining the appetite toward good things and away from bad ones, can move one to think that good things are good and bad things are bad. And because reason has an effect on the appetites, they will more easily follow the dictates of right reason if they are predisposed in the proper way toward their objects. In light of St. Thomas's example, this would be my like, like my saying that a bowl of soup looks like vomit in an attempt to move someone not to eat it. If I succeed in turning someone's stomach, I will not have given him a reason or an argument not to eat his soup, but I will nevertheless have inclined him away from a certain action by affecting his emotions. And this is precisely how the poet leads us to virtue and away from vice, at least one, one way. It is the poet's primary concern, then, to move the emotions of his audience in a pleasurable way. And in doing so, he necessarily takes on a moral purpose. The reason for this is owing to the exalted character of the passions in man. In a beast, there's no right or wrong, no moral right or wrong in the movement of the passions. But in man, the passions participate in judgment and therefore can be either good or bad. St. Thomas explains, Thus to perfect the species belongs to the dignity of a form. Yet the sensitive appetite is more noble in man because of its union with the more noble form that perfects it than it is in brute animals in which the sensitive appetite is itself the form that perfects. So because the passions are united to a more noble form, namely the rational soul, they are more dignified in us. They move and are moved by reason. If they follow the dictates of right reason, they're good. If they do not, they are bad. When the passions are moved by poetry, then, they are necessarily being disposed well or ill toward their objects. And because the poet delights us by moving these passions, he must move them in their proper measure. This explanation leads us to the consideration of what St. Thomas means when he says that poetry is the lowest of all the doctrines. While poetry does teach in a way, it does not do so by way of argument. 
It does not belong to the poet to deliver syllogisms or even dialectical arguments for or against the morality of certain actions. This belongs rather to practical philosophy. Yet this does not mean that poetry does not teach at all. It teaches in a sense by moving emotionally to one side of a contradiction by means of the representation that we experience. This teaching is more by example than by precept. It belongs to moral philosophy to teach by precept and to tell us what is right and wrong. It belongs to poetry, however, to teach us by example and to show us what is right and wrong. When a piece of fiction does too much telling, we call it preachy. In the attempt of a moralistic story to take on the role of practical philosophy, it fails in its artistic purpose and neither delights nor instructs. Rather, poetry should teach us in a natural way that comes out of the plot. Poetry does this by manifesting the universal in the singular actions of the characters that are portrayed, which are necessarily either good or bad. By representing actions as they really are, we are supplied with stark examples of right action to which we are inclined and wrong action by which we are repulsed. This is what Aristotle means when he says, poetry is something more philosophic and of graver import than history, since its statements are of the nature of universals whereas those of history are singulars. So although Prince Hamlet is a particular character, he demonstrates for us by his actions that failing to administer justice impartially to the point of trying to harm someone's soul is always and everywhere a grave evil. Yet Shakespeare does not accomplish this by supplying an argument that attempting to damn a soul is morally reprehensible. Our emotions, however, are moved to reject Hamlet's intentions as evil both because they are presented as reprehensible and because we witness his demise, which is a direct result of his tragic mistake, or hamartia. In this way, we are taught by Hamlet's example about the difference between right and wrong. As the curate says in Don Quixote, the hearer comes away from a good play all the wiser for the examples, inflamed against vice and in love with virtue. In contrast to Shakespeare, if an author were to present evils such as homosexual, adulterous, or murderous acts as if they were good, his work would suffer not only from moral deficiency, but from artistic deficiency as well. The failure would be an artistic one because the poem would fail as an imitation. It would be bad representation and therefore bad poetry. The moral effect of a poem, although secondary, is not indifferent or even accidental to the art of poetry. It's essential to it. Yet because this effect is brought about by the first and immediate end of delight, the poet must be attentive first to this end. On this point, namely that poetry should be both pleasant and conducive to virtue, there's remarkable agreement among many of the best poets. Praising a play he saw, in which he especially enjoyed a speech recounting the slaying of Priam by Pyrrhus, related in Aeneas's tale to Dido. Hamlet says that it was an excellent play, well digested in the scenes, set down with as much modesty as cunning, an honest method, as wholesome as sweet, and by very much more handsome than fine. Like a ripe and juicy piece of fruit, a piece of fiction should be both wholesome and sweet, both healthy and pleasurable at the same time. And Horace says in the Ars Poetica, he has gained every vote who has mingled profit with pleasure by delighting the reader at once and instructing him. In the Canterbury Tales, the host identifies the standard by which the tales are to be judged. 
And then the man whose story is best told, that is to say, he who gives the fullest measure of good morality and general pleasure, he shall be given a supper paid by all here in this tavern, in this very hall. And giving advice to the clerk, he says, let it be brisk adventure, stuff that nourishes. In Don Quixote, the canon, criticizing the books of chivalry, says that they are nonsensical tales that aim solely at giving amusement and not instruction, exactly the opposite of the apologue fables which amuse and instruct at the same time. This instruction at which poetry aims, however, is a secondary end, and it is instruction in a limited sense that St. Thomas describes in the example of likening food to something detestable. There are many other ways, and often much better ways, than poetry to instruct. But the primary purpose of this art is what it alone can do, or at least what it can do better than anything else, and this is to accomplish the pleasure of catharsis. Now to conclude. The attempt of this talk has been to delineate what is most universal and essential to poetry. Certainly, there is much more that pertains to the excellence of this art, and we could say much more about the things that pertain to what is most universal and essential. But these things are the subject of other lectures. If the nature and purpose of poetry have been rightly identified in our consideration, this puts us within reach of the most crucial parts of a definition from the four causes. Thus, poetry may be defined as an imaginative imitation of human action and passion made by right reason with pleasing words for the sake of the delight of catharsis. One may wonder why I have not depended even more on the testimony of poets, but instead have relied so heavily on St. Thomas, whom we regard most highly for his work as a theologian, not as an author of fiction or even as a literary critic. Perhaps it would have been better to, go on, to have gone exclusively to poets for an understanding of poetry. Yet, knowing what is most essential to the poetic art does not belong to the poet as a poet, much less to the rhapsode. The ability to write a poem and the ability to say distinctly what a poem is are not the same. If they were, then only poets could judge poetry. Rather, knowing what is most essential to the poetic art pertains to the philosopher to whom it belongs to define and to distinguish all the arts and sciences. And no one is better at this than St. Thomas. So I'll give him the last word. All of the sciences and arts are ordered to one thing, namely to man's perfection, which is his beatitude. <laughs>